Hebrews 2 in your Bibles. Finally, <laughs> beyond Hebrews 2, 1 through 4, uh, today we continue in the book of Hebrews, and it has, in fact, been a while uh, since we have moved on in the book. It's been a few weeks since we've been in the book, and then uh, we were in Hebrews 2, 1 through 4, 4, 6, I, I believe, weeks, um, speaking about the relationships between angels and the law, then considering the exhortation of the actual passage that we would give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip, then considering the nature of angels, uh, that spiritual concept of angelic hosts, and then three weeks in signs and wonders, right? Uh, so I believe that that's six weeks total that we spent on Hebrews 2, 1 through 4, and we are ready to move on, although we'll be doing this again within the book. Uh, by, by next week, we'll be understanding that uh, Paul is going to begin talking about the priesthood, and he is going to be assuming quite a lot about what the Hebrews who are reading understand about the priesthood. I am not going to make the same assumptions about us, and so we'll be spending some time talking about the priesthood as well a little bit later on uh, down the line. So this week we move in our text into very much uh, the context of what we've already talked about. Jesus is exalted. He is exalted above man. He's exalted above angel. He's exalted above prophets. He's exalted above the law. He is superior not because he is a man to the angels, as we'll see this week, man was made a little lower than the angels, but in that he earned the right to be called the only begotten Son of God through his work on the cross. And through this, he has obtained an inheritance and a more excellent name than they. Earned honor through submissive suffering. And as we step into this argument, we are stepping into an argument. Hebrews is a difficult one because in one sense, um, it... it it's, it's the most, of, of all of Paul's writing, it's the most sermon-esque. In other words, it's a little bit less structured in, in, a, in a sense. It, it's a little more flowy. If I were to preach in Romans, uh, there are really definitive points, right, where it's all, it's, it's all a, a nice flowing argument in a sense, but you've got Romans 1 through 5, you've got Romans 6 through 8, you've got Romans 9 through 11, you've got Romans 12 through 16. You can break that up nicely. Colossians. 1 and 2, and then 3 and 4. Break it up nicely. Ephesians, 1, 2, 3, and then 4, 5, 6. Uh, that these things pair nicely. There's, there, there's that structure. This is much more flowy. So we are always going to be jumping into a context. So take note of, of where we've come from, where we're going. And this week, particularly because we've been a few weeks out, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 5 to start us out. The Bible says this, Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. So Paul continues his argument in regard to the superiority and the exaltation of Jesus Christ, though his name has not yet been named, recall. Go through Hebrews chapter 1, look at the beginning of Hebrews 2, you will not see the name Jesus. You will see the Son. It, Jesus will not be named until we'll see it today in verse 9. And Paul argues that none of the angels 
have been given subjection of the world to come. In other words, in the world that is to come, it is not the angels that will be in charge. And notice just briefly, Paul then says, whereof we speak, reminding us as it relates to our context that this has been his subject, the the, the subjection of the world that is to come. Paul spoke of this in chapter 1, quoting Psalm 45, to show the exaltation of the Son in the kingdom of God. Then he quoted Psalm 110, verse 1, which speaks of the enemies of the Son being made his footstool. So this is not a foreign concept to the reader. We're speaking of the world to come. This is our context, and the angels have not been given subjection of the world to, uh, over the world to come, put in subjection the world to come. The world to come has not been put in subjection to the angels. There we go. Now, now uh, that, that's where I was getting at. Uh, the world to come has been put in subjection to the Son, who is a man, who is human. Now, this is certainly well established to us New Testament readers. We can go to Philippians chapter 2, which speaks of Jesus Christ being exalted above all things in heaven and earth. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of the Father. And we say, of course, obviously, duh. But remember Paul's audience here. He is writing to prove the nature and the superiority of Jesus Christ, not from New Testament precedent, not even based upon his apostolic authority by virtue of him being taught by Christ himself. Paul is proving his points about the superiority of Jesus Christ to the law and the prophets, to the angels, with Old Testament scripture through Old Testament arguments. Hebrews is the Old Testament argument for the superiority of the Son and the reality that the Son is Jesus of Nazareth. So Paul then continues in his argument, verses 6 through 8. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hand. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. Huh? All right. What's Paul saying here? Paul quotes here from Psalm 8. Verses 4 through 6. He says, A certain man in a certain place said, that would be David in Psalm 8. And in order to understand the full context of what Paul is thinking here and where he's going, let's go ahead and read read Psalm 8 together. Psalm 8 says this, To the chief musician upon Gittith, a psalm of David, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens, out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength, because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea. And whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas. 
O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. So this psalm is a contemplation about God's greatness and then subsequently mankind's relationship to God and his greatness. And as David wrote it, there's a clear focus upon the insignificant of, insignificance of man as it relates to the other elements of creation, juxtaposed with the reality that God has given man dominion over the created order. So that while man was made a little lower than the angels in dignity, yet in relation to God's economy, he has been exalted. Man does not have the same power or capacity as those angelic spiritual beings. They, we do not dwell in the presence of the living God as the angels do, yet God has chosen to crown man with glory and honor, giving mankind dominion putting all things under his feet. And as David, uh, uh, as, as he elaborates on the idea of thou hast put all things under his feet, we see him talk about oxen. We see him talk about fish. We see him talking about the things that are in the seas, the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, the fish of the sea. So within the limited scope uh, of the, the temporal nature of David's psalm, uh, the all things under his feet has been all of the created order as we see it. But uh, Paul sees in this tremendous prophetic implications. When Paul read all things under his feet, Paul recognizes a heightened reality to that statement. Now, as we think about this, what Paul is, is interested in is the fact that while the Bible says that God has put all things under man's feet, yet not all things are yet under his feet, including the angelic order itself. Angels are not in subjection to mankind, at least not yet. But here's the thing. They will be one day. Did you know that? Paul says to the believers in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3, that they, as those who are followers of Jesus Christ and co-inheritors of his glory, will one day judge angels. And how will this exaltation of mankind so that all things are put under his feet come about? See, because that's not now. So when Paul writes that thou hast put, David wrote, thou hast put all things under his feet, by prophetic implication, that has not, had not yet come to pass in David's day. The beasts of the field and the fowl of the air, that part had. But certainly not all things save the Father. So how does this come about? Well, it comes about through Jesus, right? Verse 9 of Hebrews 2. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. So Jesus becomes the fulfillment of this reality, this prophetic reality that God has put all things under man's feet. How? Well, because the God-man will have all things under his feet. As I've said many times, this is the first time in the whole letter where Paul uses the name of Jesus. Until this point, he's been speaking generally of comparisons between the law, the prophets, and the one who is the Son of God. It is here, first of all, where Paul says that Son of God is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And what a perfect point at which to do it. 
because we cannot go any further in this argument, in the argument of how it is that man will have all things under his feet. We cannot go any further without understanding who it is that is the, the one who has earned this right, Jesus. That mankind is destined, per the prophetic promise of Psalm 8, to have dominion over all things. But in ourselves, this is certainly not the case, is it? This cannot be the case because Adam's seed, and we are co-inheritors, uh, Adam's sin, excuse me, and, and in Adam's sin, we are co-inheritors of the spiritual death and eternal separation of Adam's sin. So how then can we be given dominion over that which is angelic in nature if we are co-inheritors of separation, the separation of death through sin? Well, we see Jesus made a little lower than the angels, meaning he took on flesh. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And he did so with a specific purpose, that he might taste death for every man, and so earn an inheritance, and thus through inheritance obtain a more excellent name than even the angels. And not only for himself, but for all who would place themselves into him by faith. By the grace of God, Jesus took on flesh that he might taste death for every man. Now let's remember what death means here. Death is a general term in the Bible. I've said this quite a bit. Uh, I, I hope it's, it's uh, sunk in well by now. Death means separation. Physical death is certainly a reality, a real thing. The separation of the material part of a man from the immaterial part of a man. Jesus tasted this. He physically died. The Bible says that he cried, it is finished, and then he yielded the ghost. He gave up the ghost, and he died. And every man has tasted this death with the exception of we who are living and Elijah and Enoch. Every other man in the history of history has tasted this death. But there's also other types of separation, isn't there? And when the Bible speaks of death, oftentimes it's not speaking of physical death, or at least it's not only speaking of physical death, it also speaks of spiritual death. Death, a separation of the immortal spirit of man from the eternal presence of the living God. And here's the thing. While mankind is born into this death as well, the minute that we are born, the clock is ticking until we die, right? It's inevitably going to happen. We are going to die. But the moment we are born, we are also born into this separation, this spiritual death. And while we're born into this death, no man in this life knows what that death, the fullness of that, that, that death experience. What, Pastor, what do you mean by that? No one in this life knows the fullness of what it means to be separated from God. You say, well, Pastor, I was uh, an unbeliever for a number of years, lived in that separation. What do you mean I don't understand it? Well, here's the thing. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 that God makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good. He makes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. The thing about it, this creation, this, this world, is that 
God's amazing grace and comforting light still enlighten this world, whether the world acknowledges it or not. In other words, nobody in this life is actually fully separated from the presence of the living God because we live in a world that declares the glory of God. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 1 that the creation testifies of God so that man is without excuse, right? None of us is entirely separated. No unbeliever is entirely separated from the, the, at least the, the radiant light of God's splendor through creation. But when Jesus spoke, when, as he lived in this life, of outer darkness, where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, This speaks of a, a state where the spirit is completely separated from God, devoid of the presence of God, a suffering which no man in this life, even in an unbelieving state, actually understands until he passes from this world into eternity, and by then it's too late, where he recognizes what it means to be utterly devoid of even the glow of God's presence. If you've ever been in a situation that is truly pitch dark, pitch black, where there is absolutely no light, it's, it's legitimately disorienting. Because even at night when you're asleep and you wake up, there's some, there's some light, right? Whether that's the moon or whether that's the reflection of lights off the snow, uh, as in this time of year where it's much brighter at night, or, or whether that be uh, the, the light, the alarm clock in the room or whatever it might be, there's always some sort of frame of reference and, and the, the, the body needs that frame of reference, right? That little glimmer of light. But when there's no light at all, it can literally drive a person to madness because it's so disorienting. Carry that into the spiritual. Even those that live in perpetual night still have the moon, still have the stars, right? Still have the distant reflection of God's light from the moon uh, reflecting the sun. Still have the distant glimmer of the stars as those who are in Christ live this world around them, still have a seven-day work week, uh, or seven-day week, excuse me, uh, reflecting the nature of God's design, still have uh, the, the presence of marriage, reflecting the nature of God's design, still have male and female, reflecting the nature of God's design, still have people that put on clothing, reflecting the nature uh, of, of the shame of sin, right? All of, these, all of these simple things are yet a reflection of the presence of God. but outer darkness, that's true separation. And this is what Jesus tasted for every man on the cross. When he cried, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus experienced a complete removal of the presence of God. He experienced that outer darkness so that those who believe on him never, ever, ever will. Jesus experienced something which the unbeliever too will one day experience, but which you and I, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, will never know. You will probably know, and if the Lord tarries, you will know what it is to die physically. You 
particularly for those of you that were saved a little later in life, know what it is to live in the darkness of your sinful heart. But if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you will never know outer darkness. Jesus knows it. Jesus tasted it. That's what it means that he tasted death. And this earned Jesus glory and honor so that as Adam sinned, earned mankind a path of death for all who would be born of a woman, Jesus' obedience earned mankind the path of life for all who would be born again by faith in his finished work. So that verse 10 says, For it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. It was meet. It was fitting. It became him that he for whom all things were created and by whom all things were created, which of course we know is Jesus, would bring mankind into glory by bringing their captain, Jesus Christ, the ultimate man into perfection through suffering that he might taste death for every man. Suffering brought Jesus into the perfected state of the resurrection. And in that he has done so, he has been exalted above all things and has earned the right to bring all who follow him with him into this glory as well. So that there's coming a day when all things will be put under Jesus's feet and where thus mankind, that portion of mankind who follows Jesus into his victory will have all things in subjection. And thus, know ye not that ye shall judge angels. This is what Paul said in Psalm 8. He also reiterates it in 1 Corinthians 15, the great resurrection chapter of our Bibles. And in that passage, David didn't write that one. In that passage in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul also quotes Psalm 8. He says this in verses 20 to 27 of 1 Corinthians 15. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ that is coming, then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom unto God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy he shall, that shall be destroyed is death. Here's Psalm 8 again. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted which did put all things under him. All things are put under man, Psalm 8 says, but only through Christ's resurrection. That, that passage did, could not mean all things. It could only mean beasts of the field and fowls of the air and fish of the sea until Jesus. And once Jesus came, when David said all things have been put under his feet, it meant all things have been put under his feet through the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. With, of course, one notable exception, which Paul notes here. Of course, accepting that when it says all things have been under his feet, there's one exception, the one who put all things under him. In other words, the Father, right? The Father is not made subject to the Son. All other things are put under his feet. 
So Christ suffered death for every man, became the author of salvation, brought all those who will believe uh, on him into this glory, making them co-heirs into his inheritance. Thus mankind stands in dominion over everything in the created order, including death itself, with the only thing not being put under man's feet being the Father, God the Father, the one who gave it to man. Understand what this means. The glory unto which we are destined, our hope of glory, which is Christ in us, Colossians tells us, where the only thing not put under the foot of man, not put into subjection to man, Jesus as the captain of that host, being God himself, this is our hope. This is our destination. This is our inheritance. Now, as Paul continues in Hebrews 2, he is very deliberate in expressing that it is not just Jesus who has this glory, but all who are in Christ through faith. So we read in verse 11 through verse 13. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. In this glory, this salvation, the man who sanctified through suffering, that would be Jesus, and the ones who are sanctified by virtue of his suffering are one. Mankind, as God intended it, will be exalted to this position. All men that are in Christ are truly in Christ and so co-inheritors with his glory. To this end, Paul says, Jesus is not ashamed to call those who follow him brethren. And once again, Paul substantiates this claim with Old Testament scriptures. He, he, he kind of pulls, pulls a few just snippets here proving his point. He quotes first from Psalm 22, 22, which says, I will declare thy name unto my brethren in the midst of the congregation, the, the word church being found here in Hebrews, will I praise thee. Then perhaps somewhat ambiguously, we don't exactly know where this is coming from, but it seems most likely from Psalm 18, verse 2, I will put my trust in him. And then finally from Isaiah 8, verse 18, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts which dwelleth in Mount Zion. In these verses, Paul, what all, all Paul is doing with these, three, with these three passages is connecting God to the way God expresses his relationship with, man, with those who, who love him. That in Psalm 22... He expresses the relationship between God and his followers as me and my brethren. That in Psalm 18, verse 2, this idea, I will put my trust in him, giving way to, uh, excuse me, uh, yeah, giving way to Psalm 8, verse 18, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me. So the relationship there between God and those who follow him is God and my children. This is the relationship between Christ and those who follow Christ. We are his brethren. We are the children of the Father. And as we think about this idea, the connection is far greater than just Savior and saved, and it really takes on a far more familial picture, far more like, well, I guess if I were to liken it to the most clear picture, 
a marriage where two become one flesh, where the Savior and the saved become one. The bride and the bridegroom. I don't know if you've ever heard that picture before related to Jesus and his followers, but you have, right? This is Christ and his church. Two, says he, shall become one flesh. So that in this life, the accomplishments of the bridegroom are also the accomplishments of the bride. I'm pointing to my wife, by the way. Her success is intrinsically rooted in my success. My failures are imputed under her by virtue of the fact that she is one flesh with me. And so her desire is to align herself with my will and my, 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 my direction and my vision in order to help me become successful because my success is her success. My glory is her glory. Where I go, she goes with me. The position I have is hers by proxy. And if I become an inheritor, so too does the bride. So when the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the bridegroom and his church is the bride, there is this idea here. The idea, as we saw here in the text, for both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one that when Christ is glorified, so too will we be. That when Christ becomes the inheritor of all things and all things are put under his feet, we will be co-inheritors as the bride of Christ with his glory. We are not just Christ's subjects. We are Christ's bride. In this case, Christ's Brethren. Now, a brief word on this idea that we are Christ's brethren. Naturally, to say that Christ is our brother conjures up any number of interpretive perversions among the cults. These false doctrines teach that Jesus was only the first of God's many children, that he was only special by the level of obedience he exhibited, and that all who follow after are able to achieve the same honor as Jesus if they work hard enough. This is particularly common among the Latter-day Saints the Mormons, where they believe that we, that Jesus was not special in, in the sense of his creation, but he became special through his works. And thus he was given a measure of subdivinity. He was given his own planet of which earth is, and he will rule and reign over that planet. And that if you're a good Mormon, you get your planet too. And you get to be the Jesus of some other planet. And you get to arise to the level of divinity as well. And so they, they speak of Jesus as our, as our brother, and they equate this in that manner. This is, of course, heresy. We know that this is not true because we've already established in Hebrews the nature of Jesus as the only begotten Son of God. I'm not a begotten Son of God. You're not a begotten Son of God because there's only one begotten Son of God. He is the only begotten Son of God, and He is the begotten Son of God by virtue of His resurrection. I don't know of that many Mormons who have been resurrected lately. And they're not going to be because He is the only begotten Son of God. He is not just 
the, the highest form of what we could also become. He is exclusive. He is unique. He has a exclusive relationship to the Father of which we cannot attain save through him as a co-inheritor of his glory. So when the Bible uses the term brother, a more general term meaning close relation, the idea is not that, we are, that there are no fundamental distinctions between Jesus and any other human save those of behavior, but rather that we are co-inheritors with Christ's glory, as I've said many times. Jesus, by his death, did something for us that we could never do for ourselves. It is absolutely biblically incorrect to think that we could ever be on his plane in that regard. But in this sense, co-inheritors, that the, the sanctified and they who are the sanctifier and they who are sanctified are all of one. In this sense, we truly are Christ's brethren. But make no mistake, Christ is God in flesh, something you and I will never be. Christ is the captain of our salvation, of which we are blessed inheritors, not by our own works, but by his work on the cross. But I bring you back to our context and this picture of relationship between Jesus as Savior and the church as saved, Jesus as bridegroom and the church as the bride. Now our focus uh, is, is on Jesus this week, not on the church. Next week, we're going to focus on the redeemed. This week, we're focusing upon the Redeemer. Next week, we'll focus about how special you are to Christ. This week, we consider how special Christ should be to you. And to think through this, I recall your mind to the final phrase of verse 9, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. You're likely familiar with Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For, yet, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Consider this message with me. When we were, yet, when we were without strength, no capacity in ourselves, no capacity in our institutions, no capacity in our societies or cultures. When we were without any strength, we could not trust ourselves to pull us up. We could not trust our churches to pull us up. We could not trust our, our, our governments to pull us up. We could not trust our society to pull us up or our culture to pull us up. Humanity can do any number of amazing things, can it not? We built grand monuments. We've tamed seas. We've harnessed resources, even ventured beyond our own planet's atmosphere to that which is beyond. But the most needful and important thing that humanity has ever lacked, that thing which was lost in Adam, the most essential thing of all things, which is true life, humanity simply has no means by which to secure it. No invention can get us there. No ingenuity can get us there. No amount of capital can get us there. No amount of resources can get us there. We are powerless to cleanse our own conscience. We are powerless against the stain of sin within. 
We are powerless to enlighten our darkened minds to the truths of God's word. But what man was powerless to do, even through external divine instruction, such as the law of Moses, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. There are a precious few people in this world I would lay down my life for. And were I noble enough to lay down my life for strangers alongside those who I loved. Yet we find this man, Jesus, tasted death for every man. For men who would go to their graves shaking their fist at so great salvation. For men who would rather curse God and die. Jesus shed his blood for them. So great is God's love for you. So great is God's love for us that we might just accept so great salvation, that we might just be redeemed from our powerless state and ushered into Christ's victory over sin and over death and over darkness and over condemnation. So great is God's love to be made, uh, that we might be made one of God's sons, that he might bring us unto glory. So great is God's love for us that he would send his son to secure this for us, even for those who will reject him. And why then do we follow Jesus? We follow Jesus because there is no other savior. There is no other religion. There is no other system. There is no alternative truth claim that lays hold of such mercy and grace. There is nothing else out there that even claims to do or to be what Jesus has done or is for us. There's none greater, for Jesus is the only begotten Son. Greater than the angels, greater than the law, greater than the prophets. And all the more importantly, here's the important one for you and for me, greater than our sin. Grace that is greater than all our sin what is poured on us through Christ. And when at once we understand this, Christian, there is but one appropriate response. Love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Love him because he first loved you. Love him because he has redeemed you from the curse of the law being made a curse for you. Love him for tasting death for you. Love him for purging your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Love him for satisfying the longing in your heart, for quenching your thirst, for renewing your soul. Love him because without him you had no hope of redemption, no hope of victory, no hope of eternal life. Love him because in him you can live without fear. Love him because in him you never need to be alone again. Love him because without him we had no eternal life, but now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. And for we who are in Christ, he has made us alive, made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ. And he waits in heaven to return, to get us, to take us with him back to his father's house. That where we are, there, that where he is, there we may be also at which time all things will be put under his feet. 
And we, as his bride, all things will be put under our feet. So that, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, we will judge angels. And this, by God's amazing grace, is your Savior and your God. And this is why we should love him. May we never forget it. May we never cease to walk worthy of it. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.